Luke chapter 4, verse 31. It says, Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, on the Sabbath. He taught people, and they were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. As, I, as I've mentioned several times, uh, the reason that Luke is most likely writing to a dignitary named Theophilus, this is actually written to a person, <clears throat> and his name was Theophilus, he's probably a dignitary, and it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 4, it says, that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. And so everything Luke is writing in this book is so that this guy named Theophilus would know the certainty of the things he'd been taught. And that is definitely concerning that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, who was prophesied in the Old Testament that would come and save God's people. And that is one of the most amazing things about Scripture is the whole Old Testament is full of prophecies about Christ. It tells the future before it happens, so much so that when people read it and they look at it who do not know the Lord, they say, this must have been written after the fact. And you hear that in classrooms throughout all America. And yet, discoveries like the Dead Sea Scrolls will pop up when people will say, oh, well, you know, it was written after the fact, and then archaeologists all of a sudden find a scroll that was a thousand years earlier than what had previously been discovered, and you find out that it's the exact same thing. They're all, oh, well, and then they start conjecturing off. It's amazing. The, the Old Testament, full of prophecies concerning who Jesus would be, and Lucas putting an orderly account together that the reader might know that he's truly the Messiah because the enemy wants you to doubt the Word of God. He wants you to doubt that Jesus can save. He wants you to doubt the authority of Jesus Christ in your life. And he is at work in the world in every single institution, every single place to undermine the authority of Jesus Christ in this world. And Luke's just saying, no, we're not going to have that. I'm going to remind you, and by the way, because you reminded Theophilus, guess who else gets reminded? We do. Of the certainty of the authority of Jesus Christ. And so Luke's been making that case over the first four chapters that Jesus is the Messiah. Messiah simply means Christ, which means the anointed one, the Son of God who was prophesied to come and save God's people. And putting that in simple terms, there's a lot more to it, but that's the gist of it. And from where he was born to the way he was born to his royal lineage to the prophecies concerning John the Baptist who would come before Jesus Christ, all of which point to the fact that Jesus was indeed the Messiah that the Old Testament taught about. In chapters 3 and 4, then Luke start, begins to make the case that Jesus had the fullness of the Spirit because the, the, <clears throat> the anointed one, the Messiah, means that he would be empowered to do the things of God. And, and the evidence of the Holy Spirit upon the Messiah would mean that he would have power to do the, the acts and the works of God. And so that's the, the case he's making there. And we've been going through that in chapters 3 and 4 where he had the fullness of the Spirit. He was being filled, he was filled with the Spirit. He's led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. And later in chapter 4, which we led last, read last week, is that the anointing that the Messiah would have was that 
prophesied back in Isaiah 61, which Jesus declared in his hometown of Nazareth, where Jesus read, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, which means empowered me, authorized me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind and to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee. And that is what Jesus did. People who were blind now saw. People who were imprisoned were set free and all those types of things. Literally, I would say, and also physically. You know, physically, he was, he was redeeming people, but, but it also has the overtone of, of the spiritual reality of that's what God wanted to do in the first coming of Jesus Christ in people's hearts. People are spiritually blind. They're spiritually in bondage. They're darkened. They're broken. They're lame and they're weak. And Jesus has come to declare the, the year of Jubilee that we are set free from our sins. Amen? You've been set free. How many of you would you like just someone to walk in and say, your debts are forgiven? I'd be like, woo! <clears throat> any of you like college debt or just like dumb debt, all those things? You know, it's like, are you kidding me? Yeah, I've paid it all. No, I don't believe it. And you walk on living in debt. And Jesus is saying, not only am I declaring it, I'm going to show you that I have authority to do what I said. Because someone could say, walk up to you and say, I've, 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 I've decreased your debt. But until you see the balance, right? And so not only does Jesus declare he has authority, but he's going to show us that he has authority by what he does. Amen? And that's what I love. That's what Luke is getting at. I'm getting ahead of myself. This is good. But Jesus had said, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And Luke makes the case and reminds the office that the Old Testament scripture said of the Messiah that he would have authority, that he would have that power, that anointing. Now, the word anointing has weird kind of connotations in the circle of, of Christianity sometimes. And, and what, what it simply means is, is the power of God resting upon him. And we can get deeper into that. But as we see in chapter 4, that Jesus had authority over temptation of the devil. How many of you have authority over temptation? Well, but I'd like to say I do, don't you? We actually do have authority over temptation because of Jesus within us, but do we apply it? But we see that Jesus, when tempted, had authority over temptation. And I don't know about you, but if someone's going to save me from my sin, it would be really great benefit for him to have authority over temptation. Amen? Power over the devil, Yes. And so we see that we were just very encouraged that Luke is giving evidence after evidence for Theophilus and, and for us that we know for sure the things that have been taught, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was sent to save us from our sins, actually can do what he says he was going to do and still does what he says he would do. <clears throat> and if Jesus has authority over temptation and the devil... Um, and that encourages my heart, and hopefully it encourages your heart, because the enemy is constantly trying to get us to doubt the authority and power of Jesus Christ. He's trying to get us to doubt that day after day. And so Luke continues to illustrate the authority that the Lord has. And in today's section, in 30, verses 33 through 44, the first thing Luke wants us to know about Jesus, Jesus, is, uh, Jesus is that his words have authority. They have power. In other words, when Jesus says it, it happens. Now, I don't know about you, but I found out that I really don't have much authority. Anybody else? 
<clears throat> I say things all day long and nothing happens. Anyone? I mean, I tell myself to do stuff and I don't even do it. I remember when I was a kid wanting to have, you know, superpowers. Anybody else wanted superpowers? Yeah, totally. How many of you watch Star Wars and then secretly try to use the Force? Any of you? And if you aren't raising your hands, you're weird. No, I'm just kidding. We all try to use the Force. It doesn't work. Why not? Because there's no authority. There's no power. It doesn't happen. It's not real, right? It's, it's so to speak. Um, but one thing that happened here is that Jesus' words have authority. What does verse 32 say? It says they were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. They had power. What he was saying hit their hearts. It came true. He wasn't just um, saying a bunch of things. He wasn't just um, quoting a bunch of other guys. He actually, when he spoke, there was authority. But we know that we authority is really something that has power behind it, right? And that's the nature of God. God is the author, authority of all authority. He is where authority comes from. And we see this in Genesis chapter 1, 3, right in the very beginning. And God said, let there be light. And guess what? It says, and there was light. And then you go to verse 6, and it says, And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate the water from the water. Now you're going, what is a vault? Let there be sky. And guess what? And it was so, it says. And verse 9 of Genesis 1 says, And God said, Let the water into the sky be gathered into one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. Verse 11, And God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and so forth, so on. And it was so and so forth, and so on. And so what we learn about God is that His Word has authority. What He says happens. That's awesome to know about God, that you can actually trust what He says. He has authority. So if God were to say to you, you're going to hell, guess what is happening? Going to hell. But if He says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes upon Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Guess what happens? You have everlasting life when you put your faith in what He says, because it will happen. And then you flip to verse 3 in Genesis, and the enemy pops in there, and he says, did God really say? That's the first words out of Satan's mouth. Did God really say? And that's what he does. He gets us to doubt what God says over and over through various means. And as Jesus spoke the word of God to them, they realized that he wasn't just quoting other people. He was saying this is what, he wasn't just saying this is what it means, but he was speaking with authority like he wrote it because he did. He was teaching with authority because he was the author. And this is because he was the word through which the worlds were created and in whom things, all things hold together. Amen? I love that about the Lord. Anybody else? And Luke, through the Holy Spirit, is wanting his readers to know that Jesus' authority isn't just fluff. You know, there's a lot of people that say that they have authority. There's a lot of people that say that they have authority, but unless what they say happens, they don't have authority. 
That's a, that's a truth. And so in verse 33, Luke is going to recount the first miracle that Luke records. It's not the first miracle of Jesus, but it's the first miracle that he records to demonstrate that the kind of authority that Jesus has. So let's read it. Verse 33 through 37, it says, In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. And he cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have, we come, have, to, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Verse 35, Be quiet, Jesus said sternly, come out of him. And then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out of him without injuring him. And all the people were amazed and said to each other, What words are these? With authority and power he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout all the surrounding area. Now, one of the third verse things right off the bat the Holy Spirit is teaching through this and reminding us of this morning is that when Jesus speaks, demons shudder. When Jesus is present, demons shudder. In other words, Jesus has absolute authority over demons. Now, for those of you who went to the foundations class, we learned that demons are fallen angels. That is what they are. They're, they're spirits. They're spirit in nature, although they can materialize in bodily form, so to speak, but they are, they are ministering their spirits that were fallen. Lucifer, Satan, the devil, whatever you want to call him, he has many names. He was the chief angel, one of the chief angels in heaven, which you can read about in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. And when he rebelled, when he was cut down, he took one-third of the angels. The Bible says that the number of angels is innumerable. 10,000 upon 10,000 is an idiom, meaning you can't count them. And so one-third of the uncountable angels have fallen. Now, angels are very powerful. They're spirits. They have various ranks and powers and are under the authority of their leader, it seems, their chief, uh, Satan. And one of the many abilities that fallen angels have is to possess people that are not filled with the Spirit of God, that are not born again. That is, people who do not have the Spirit of God residing in them, right? Those who are born again cannot be possessed by demons. I know there's weird teaching out there. They cannot be possessed by demons. They can be harassed and oppressed, but they can never be oppressed. And so we just want to get that teaching out there right away. The first mention of demon possession in Scripture is in Genesis chapter 6, where it seems that fallen angels possessed fallen men. And then they went and had relationships with women, and as a result, they had kind of these mutant offspring, the Nephilim. And this isn't just biblical account. This, is, this, is, this is, comes from other things within the world, talking about um, maybe you can get into mythology. I don't even want to go that far with it. But uh, you can get into just giants, they're giants in the land, and that's what they're called, the Nephilim, the giants, six-fingered people, all that type of stuff. And I know this sounds really strange, but just do a little search history, and you'll, you'll find that there are, there's tons of external, even, uh, discussions about giants. Under the giant was one of them. No, I'm just kidding. We're just going <clears> to... <throat> maybe. I don't know. But the, <laughs> but the rest... What's interesting is you have that one case... And then the rest of the Old Testament is absolutely silent. On, you have, they're totally silenced. The Old Old Testament is silent on demon possession. You just don't see it. I like what um, 
John Mark MacArthur thinks on this. He says he thinks this because demonic forces are by their fallen nature deceptive. He, in other words, they don't want to reveal themselves. Their nature, their mode of apparatus is deception and deceit and behind the scenes. They're like the CIA, FBI type, espionage type thing. They're nev- you never know that they're there, so to speak. That's what they would prefer. And rather you know, than being out in front and full-on people freaking out and all that type of stuff, Normally, they're working behind the scenes to influence and to sway fallen men and women through their thoughts and through their emotions and in their actions. And I tend to agree with this. Second Corinthians 4, 4 says, the God of this age has blinded the minds. The God of this age, little g, uh, meaning just ruler, uh, the God of the sage, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers, people who do not believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. So part of the demonic work is to spiritually blind people from seeing God, who is who Paul says is very evident that he created the universe. Just had a discussion the other day with someone from Whitman College, and we were discussing that I was discussing just from self I said if if I were to say that this Bible came about because it exploded in a printing press and there it it just poofed out. It came out. You'd look at me and go, you're crazy. But if I said that happened billions of years ago, you go, that's fine. But if I were to tell you that actually there was a thought and intent and a design behind this, you would go, yeah, that makes sense to me. And yet, why do we look at the world full of order and assume it came from chaos? When everything we do is in order correct? I go look at that beautiful car in the parking lot. There was a thought behind that. There was a person, there was an intent, and there was a design. And so, well, that's kind of fun. Um, (laughs) I'm just kind of, I don't even know where I was going with that. Where was I? I want a new car. That's what I want. Yeah. Yeah. But the idea is that the enemy is behind the scenes influencing and swaying fallen men through their thoughts and their emotions. And, the, and he's blinding, that was it. The, the verse was he was blinding this world to the things that are obvious, the things that God has created, his attributes and all those things. In other words, Satan and his demons are actively influencing mankind in their thinking, blinding them to their gospel. Ephesians 2, 1 through 2 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. There's a ruler, there's an authority, there's a power that is working in those who are disobedient towards God. How many of you have been disobedient towards God? What's behind that? I'll get to blaming the devil for everything, don't worry. But there is a force behind that, a way of the world. And so Satan and his demons are ruling this world. And he rules in those who are disobedient to God, either through possession or oppression, or just influence. And that's, the, that's his main mode of operation, is deception and influence. And we need to know that. We need to know our enemy. But we see here in Luke that a demon actually possessed a man. 
And we're going to find out that he possesses a lot of people. And by the way, more than one demon can possess a person. And so demons can enter a person and control a person, their speech and their thoughts and their actions. And this is a real thing. And every once in a while, you're going to hear something on the news where some guy decides that in the name of God, he's going to go out and he's going to start murdering people. And God told me to do it. And he's hearing voices and all that stuff. And instantly, I know, and and people go, oh, well, he's just mentally off, which might be true. But I tell you what, there's a demonic influence behind that. There's a demonic influence upon that, playing on that guy's flesh, agitating him to the point, pushing him to the point where he's going to go out and, and, and do those things. I believe that that's a real thing. I'm not discounting mental illness, but I'm saying that there's a real enemy who does real things and can really influence people within this world. We hear that from time to time. Now, we often attribute these things to mental illness, which I said is a very real thing. When your chemicals are off and all those types of things, you can abuse yourself and you don't, you don't operate normally. But make no mistake, there is that influence of the enemy upon people. Now, I, I do realize that some people blame everything on the devil and demons. And this is true, Have, and especially in certain circles of, of Christianity. In other words, everything is the devil's fault. The devil made me do it, right? It's all the devil, and it's the reason why you're doing what you're doing is because Satan. All the time. Like, the, have, you, have you been around that? Have you been experienced to that? Now, we've got three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Amen? We're getting death. We've got some other things. But in general, the world, the flesh, and the devil. You've got this fallen world that is broken. You've got a fallen inside, which is prone to do things that are against God. And then you've got the devil using the world to get to act with on your insides to go do what you don't want to do. Anybody have that scenario going on every day? Yes, that's what it's called to be fallen. But we often blame the devil for what he actually didn't do quite often. I love what Brother K.P. O'Hannon, he was saying in one of his things, he says, uh, He's from Gospel for Asia. He said there was a person who came to him and said, Brother KP, please pray for me. I have a demon of smoke. And this guy's an Indian guy. you know. He said, but he says, I can't quit smoking. KP says, man, the poor devil gets blamed for everything. He's, not, he's just going to be facetious there. He says, your problem is not the devil, it's your flesh. You need to crucify the flesh. I can't cast out your flesh. You've got to crucify it. You've got to reckon yourself dead to Christ. Amen. So many people are blaming all their problems on, oh, i got a demon of smoke or there's a demon of you know, desire and all this type of stuff. Yeah, he might be playing on that. He might be pushing on that, but I tell you what, for the Christian, we now have power and authority over that. We reckon ourselves dead. We crucify that stuff. Amen? That's what happens. I don't have power over that apart from Christ who has the authority in me. Amen? And so i got to get Jesus inside of me. His spirit has to live within me, the same spirit that was upon Christ, so that I have power and authority over these things in my life. And that's what the cross does. It makes us born again, born of a new spirit. And so, make no mistake, our flesh is, 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 is a real enemy, and we deal with it every day. 
And I'm not saying everything is a demon, but demons are real fallen angels, impure spirits, and they are powerful, and they influence our society. They influence our schools more and more so. They influence our government. They influence our leadership. They influence our media and television and songs day in, day out to where you don't even realize you're being indoctrinated against those things that are godly. And by the way, they influence the church. Demons go to church. Did you know that? Churches that are godless and Christless and crossless, they're at home. Where is this guy possessed? In the synagogue. Whoa. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says, And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades, masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what they deserve. And so people who are influenced by demonic forces who are not born again are, are infiltrating the pulpits of America, who are on elder boards, influencing things, who are sitting in the pews, who are serving in church, and we're all looking like angels of light. Scary stuff, huh? Because the enemy's main, main mode of, of, of operation is deception. Deception. He will wrap all that stuff up in Christianese like you don't know, and he'll tie a bow on it, but he's going to leave out the cross, and he's going to leave out repentance, and he's going to leave out forgiveness and turning and all that type of stuff, and He'll talk to you about how to have a better marriage, and he'll talk to you about everything you want to know. Oh, you want money? I'll teach you how God will bless you. Don't you want to have money? Oh, man, I want to have money. God wants to bless me. Yay, Woohoo! Jesus wasn't very rich when he was here, right? What's up with that? Why wasn't Jesus really rich? He didn't even, he was homeless. He was walking around the streets, living day to day. What's with that? Those who are Christ follow in his footsteps. Not to say you all got to be homeless, right? But that's not the gospel. That's a false gospel. And and demonic influence. The doctrine of demons is behind that kind of stuff. But notice where that demon was in verse 33. It says he was in the synagogue. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon. Demons go to church. Churches that are godless and Christless and powerless. Where Jesus isn't. That's where they go. And they actually start churches like that. And they start religions and false religions and all that type of stuff. They split churches. They do all that kind of stuff. But they possess a man who went to the synagogue. But when Jesus came to the synagogue, the demon what? He came undone. He he lost it. And this is why I think the New Testament has a dramatic increase in, in demonization because they can hide in the shadows, but when Jesus Christ, who has authority and power, comes, he is there. And guess what? They are exposed and they are freaking out because he has total authority over them. Look at the reaction the demon had to Jesus in verse 33. He cried at the top of his voice, he's like, go away. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. He just starts calling out to him. And just crying out, like just in fear, like what's going on here? Why are you here? Right? We gain some real insight into the nature of the demonic mindset regarding Jesus. They tell him to go away. They don't want to be around him. And so they're comfortable where he's not. Are they comfortable in your home? 
other comfortable around your kids, all that type of stuff. Are we centered on Christ? Is he in us and through us? You know what I'm saying? I want to make that as much comfortable. When we praise God, are we praising God? You know what I mean? Some things like that. But they're fearful of Jesus. Why? Verse 34, because they know Jesus can destroy them. His power over them. Why? Because they recognize his authority. I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Demons, although fallen, they have a proper theology of God. Isn't that interesting? They have a proper understanding of who God is. Now, I wouldn't take a demon's word for a Bible lesson, but we learned some things here. Jesus demonstrates his authority over them in verse 35. Be quiet, Jesus said to him, said to it sternly, come out of him. And what happens? Now, what happens when Jesus speaks? It happens. How many of you have heard about exorcisms? How long does it take for like a demon to finally leave someone? Like, and who knows if they really are? Or even if they were in them in the first place. I don't know all that stuff, right? But it's a big, vast difference kind of from what I see here. Jesus speaks, and they're like, goodbye. They leave. Why? Because he has authority over demons. The demon threw the man down before them all, and he came out without injuring him. And all the people were amazed when they watched us, and they said to each other, what words are these? What in the world? This guy says things and they happen. With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. And what happened? News spread about him throughout the whole surrounding area. That which has gripped and seized and blinded and oppressed and possessed them. And who knows what the manifestations of the demonic thing were happening in this guy. There's blindness, there's mutinous, there's, uh, you know, cutting themselves. There's all that type of stuff that is evident from a demonic possession from a scriptural standpoint that can happen. Psychosis, suicide, all that stuff. You can see, you can, it's laid out in scripture, demonic influence on those things or at least that was evident in people who were demonically possessed it's funny we we talk about that now and, and as americans we go oh that's silly it's really interesting i had a foreign exchange student that was from saudi arabia um, in my house he was a muslim and we were all having a, a, a prayer meeting downstairs and and we were praying and worshiping and and uh and he was upstairs. He, he got really fearful when we started praying. And he went and opened his Quran and started praying and all that type of stuff. And I went and talked to him later. I said, well, what's going on with that? And he, and he said, you know, I was, he says, I just had this tremendous fear of, of, of genies. And we kind of think like, oh, rub the genie in the bottle. Well, that's his word for evil spirits. You know, that there's a, a real understanding in other parts of the world about what spirits are that us Westerners are blinded to. And I think that's a tactic of the enemy. He doesn't care whether you believe in him or not. He just cares that you don't believe in him. I think that's one of the things. But that which had gripped and binded and was, was gone at the words of Jesus. Now, church, it's important for us to recognize that our enemy is actively seeking to come against us because of whose we are. We're his, Amen. 
We're followers of Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, Jesus has, has given us authority to go out into all the world and to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. He has said, I've authorized you to do this. You go do it. I've given you the authority to do that. That's what he said to his disciples. And I believe that's our call as well. We have been given the authority to take the fight to the enemy to go pierce the darkness of this world with the light and the truth and the love of Jesus Christ. You have the authority, but guess what happens when you start going into that situation? When you start to give the gospel to your loved ones, when you start to share Christ in the darkness and to tear down those strongholds in the minds and the hearts of people using the word of God, you're going to get resistance. The enemy doesn't like it. You're taking his ground. And so as we obey, and as we ourselves are submitted to the word of God, which is the authority of God, and as we begin to spread the word, the good news into the darkness, our, you know, and all those people realize that you're coming into contact with our enemy, and he doesn't like the light. And so expect resistance. Expect people to act strange. Expect people to suddenly freak out or to give you the cold shoulder. Expect that oil, that oil and water scenario. Expect for you to have weird dreams. Expect for you to, to be agitated all of a sudden and you're not knowing why. Expect the enemy to be at work. Am I talking to anybody or is this just me? He's at work. But look past the person into the spiritual battle. Remember that Jesus has the authority over the powerful influences over that person's life. We're looking at symptoms. But there's something deeper. And Jesus has authority over that. And begin to pray for that person. Be praying in the Spirit. Be praying that the enemy would be removed from that situation. That the gospel would be able to come in and begin to set down into their heart and begin to produce the fruit. That faith would be mixed with that. That there would be the fruit that they would receive Christ and be changed from the inside out and become what they can't be on their own. And the enemy's going to fight against that. You know, you can't change a thing in other people. But your king, who loved and died for you, is seated at the right hand of the Father, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the name to, the age to come. The Lord Jesus, amen? So call out to him. Put your trust in him. Put on the armor he gave you. And ladies, you're going to be excited this summer. I want, I'm not going to spill the beans, but Carol has something cool for you. But take advantage of it. But Jesus said, go, and the demon went. Amen? Let's read through this rest of us real quickly. Jesus left the synagogue. He went to the home of Simon. This is Peter. Another name for Peter, Simon. Jesus renames people all the time. It says, now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. And so he bent over and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. And the moral of this is that nothing becomes, comes in between Jesus and a sandwich. No, I'm just kidding. No, that's not it. <laughs> what, do you think, what do you think Luke's trying to tell us? Jesus has authority over what? Over what? Sickness. Jesus has authority over sickness, does he not? And notice her response when she's healed. She serves. <laughs> 
I love that about the Lord. When he comes and he touches us, our response is worship. Lord, have my heart. What can I do for you? Can I make a sandwich for you? Whatever it is, you know what I mean? Whatever your gifting is, you just lay it down before him and say, here I am. I love that response. Notice Peter was married. Just for those with a Catholic background, Peter was married. Peter was the first pope, supposedly, right? He's married, right? Man, I think it's a good idea for guys to get married, don't you? If you can, I understand the teaching. The teaching. Okay, yeah, sorry. The teaching is, you know, if you can stay single, stay single. But if you're burning with lust, you better get married. I think that goes for the ministry too. So I don't know where they got that doctor from. Peter was married, right? But Jesus has authority over sickness. That was a sidebar. Have you taken... What, what is the first thing you do when you, when you start to feel sick? I just want to ask you, what is the first thing you do? Wine. <laughs> wine. Okay, don't listen to anybody. What's the first thing you do? Go to the doctor. What else? And we're popping vitamin C and we're doing all that stuff, right? Why, why are we doing that? I'm not saying we don't, right? But I'm saying, what are we putting our trust in right away? Instantly, this has authority over this. I want to pop vitamin C because I know my immune system and I'm going to put zinc and all that stuff. Now, I had cancer, right? I praise God for the medical field. I am not a weirdo. But I just think our first reaction, our very first reaction should be to go to the authority over all sickness. Lord God, I'm getting a cold. Would you... Would you be merciful to me? And I found that when I do pray for my children who are sick, it's, it's amazing how quickly their fever breaks. It's amazing how those things happen. I'm not saying always. I'm not saying it's a, you know, it's a magic formula and all that type of stuff, but just laying them before the Lord. We should be in a habit. As, the, as, as soon as there's a need, we should go to the Lord in everything. And then, yeah, pop the pill. You know, get do whatever you need to do. I mean, go to the doctor and all that stuff. I'm I'm very practical in that way, probably to a fault. But I think if we recognize that Jesus is the authority, they went and notice what happened. She was sick, and what did they do with her with with the mother-in-law? They went to Jesus, and said, "Will you help her?" Right? They brought her to Jesus, so they brought Jesus to her, putting people in contact with Jesus. So, do we pray for them? Let's move on to the next section. Verse 40, what happened as a result? And at sunset, people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness. And laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Various kinds of sickness. I have a friend who's a, a dear friend who's a pediatrician, and, and he talks about all the various things that are coming through the valley, you know, at the time, you know, different kinds of colds and mutations and stuff. And we got to kind of talk about that. It's various, it's wide, it's broad, and it affects a lot of people. How many of you have had the flu this past year? or some kind of variation of a cold, or whatever that is, and what you had wasn't necessarily what your neighbor had. Very, so I'm just saying, all this kind of stuff. And it says that at sunset, people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on what? On what? Each one. He healed them. Talk about health care. Health care. <laughs> Is that amazing? On each one. How many people was that? 
I have no idea. Thousands? I have no idea. And each one, he laid his hands on them, looked into their eyes, talked to them, prayed for them, healed them, whatever it was. I think that is beautiful. And moreover, demons came out of people, many demons. Came out, it came out of many people. There was a lot of demonic activity. And they came shouting, you're the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. So Jesus has authority over all kinds of things. What you got going on in your life? All kinds of things he has authority over. And demons, they're, they're, they're subject to him. Told them to be quiet and get lost, and they did. Verse 42 says, At break day, at, at the daybreak, Jesus went to a solitary, a solitary place. If, if, you, if Jesus had an agent, that agent would be like, Dude, you've got to get on all the talk shows right now, and, and this is going up. You need to capitalize on this, right? And what does Jesus do? He goes away from the publicity, he's humble. All that authority and all that power, and what is he at the root of who he is? He's humble. That's called meekness. It means, it's not weakness, it means authority under control. His mode wasn't to go get more authority. He had the authority. His mode was to be in the Father's will. And notice what had happened. When you are hearing the praise of people, what do you want to do? I want to stay around those people, don't you? They're giving you the attaboys. I'm going to hang around these people a little while longer, right? I want to hear where things are good. Well, what does Jesus do? What does it say? After he went to a solid place, the people were looking for him. And they came, they found where he was. And they tried to keep him from leaving, but he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also. Because that is why I was sent. I wasn't stayed to stay in one place. I was sent to Go. Now, I praise the Lord. The Lord put me here. I don't feel like going anywhere. But I do know that the Lord has called me and you to go within Walla Walla and wherever we are with the power and authority of Jesus Christ and to proclaim his freedom to the captives. Amen? And as we come in contact with the enemy and as we get resistance, guess what? Put on the armor. Remember who's on the throne and push in and say, not today, buddy. <laughs> Jesus is here. And so pray up. Be in the word. Be a worshiper. Lay down your lives for others. Embrace the cross. Be filled with his word. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's synonymous, I believe. And you will have power. Amen? That's where it comes from. Just Jesus in me. He's it. It's not the group of words I say. It's Him. Filling me, living through me. The less of me, the more power of Him. Amen. And you will notice, one last thing, when God starts to do something, there's going to be more activity like that. And learn to recognize it. Learn to discern it. And learn that the weapons that we fight it with are not, oh, that person's a jerk. Or I wish they'd get their stuff in line. We get on our knees. And we start going, Lord, I can't see clearly, but I know that there's something behind us. Give me wisdom. Lord God, help me love. Help me reach out and touch that person individually.
So, Lord God, we come before you, and, and, and we know that you have given your son all authority and all power. And I can imagine in this room that hearts are in bondage and are overwhelmed in many ways. And we have people we love that are in bondage and blind and, and overwhelmed with situations, and we just feel like we're helpless. And I pray that we would be reminded of the things we were taught, that you are the Messiah, that you have all authority and all power. And so we come to you, Lord Jesus, and we ask for your will to be done in these circumstances, in our lives and in the world. And so if, if someone here this morning has not given their heart to Jesus Christ and they are, have never said, Lord, forgive me of my sin. I'm in bondage. I want you to come and save me. The Bible says that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He died to pay it, to forgive you of everything, to make your debts go away towards God. And that if anyone would call out to the Lord, would believe in their hearts and confess with their mouth, believe in their hearts that Jesus died on the cross and, and for their sins, and, and believe and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and, and rose from the grave, that they would be saved. If that's you, just call out and say, Lord, God, save me. Raise your hand right now. We'll pray for you. We'll pray for you. I'm not going to make you come up here, but you just need to declare, Lord, God, I need help. Save me. If that's you, amen. Lord, bless you. This is where pride comes in. This is where the enemy comes in, and he says, don't. Everybody's going to look at you. They're going to care what you think, all that stuff. You've got to abandon yourself. Give your heart to the Lord. Lord, bless you. He sees your heart, but he wants, to, he wants you to lay it all down. Lord, bless you. Come on, give it up. Lord, bless you. He's here to bring you freedom. It's not through me, it's through him. He's here, he's present. Anyone else? Lord God, we lift up these people and we ask that right now you would surround them and flood them with your presence and your truth and your love. Protect them from the evil one. And so those of you who raised your hand, I'd like you to pray from your heart with me to the Lord. Father in heaven, I'm a sinner. I've broken your perfect law and I'm guilty. But I believe that you sinned, you sent your son to die in my place. That through his death, I go free. But now, I am yours. And I commit my life to you. And I give you my whole heart. Forgive me of my sin. And may I follow you all the days of my life. In the name of Jesus, amen.